going to grab your Bibles and join me in the book of Philippians chapter 4. On Sunday mornings, we've been journeying through the book of Philippians together, and we left off there in the fourth chapter. If you do need a Bible, the men in the aisles have some copies. You can slip your hand up, and they'd be happy to give you a copy of the Word of God to follow along with us as we study the Bible this morning. Last Sunday morning, we made our way in chapter 4 down as far as verse 5. This morning, we're going to pick up in verse 6 and travel down through verse 9. We're, I'll let you know in advance, going to kind of hover over verses 6 and 7 a little more than verse 8 and 9, so don't panic if it seems like we're we're, we're camping there for a little bit in regards to a time frame. I just sense the Lord would have us to hover in verse 6 and 7 a little more in regards to our exposition. But if you're turned to chapter 4 with me, would you stand together with me out of respect for God's word as we read our passage of scripture? Philippians 4 in verse 6, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication... With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure and whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. And Father, we ask humbly for the help of your Holy Spirit's ministry this morning. Lord, we humbly ask that you would do in each and every one of our lives this morning whatever is necessary, that we might be the most alert and attentive as we absolutely can to what the voice of the Spirit of the living God would want to say to each one of us this morning. Lord, I ask that you would prepare me and that you would prepare each one of us to be able to have an ear to hear what the Spirit of the Lord would say to this part of your church that's assembled this morning. Lord, bless your word, and we pray for your Spirit's ministry to communicate to us, and we thank you in advance for doing such in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I'm not the greatest guesser, but could it actually be possible that in your life you find yourself right now facing some sort of a problem? You know, I have found in my own life and witnessing and interacting with the lives of others that it is simply not possible on this earth to live a problem-free life. However, though it's not possible to live a problem-free life, I've also discovered it is possible to live a peaceful life. That is, it is possible to actually experience peacefulness inside of us even while we're still enduring problems and experiencing the challenges that we go through on our journey on this earth. You know, to be peaceful is basically defined as a state of tranquility, to be untroubled by conflict or agitation, freedom from worrisome or overwhelming thoughts or emotions. And it is actually possible in the presence of difficult situations that are causing conflict and agitation, it's still possible to experience that state 
of peacefulness inside of our lives. In fact, here we find in these verses God himself giving to us basically helpful instruction regarding living a peaceful life. You notice in the reading of our text that it talks about us experiencing the peace of God. At the end there in verse 9, God's actually called the God of peace. So this morning we look at this together and we'll find helpful instruction regarding living a peaceful life despite the fact that we still have problematic lives in each and every one of our experiences. Now the background, remember, is this. In our letter... Paul has talked, if we take what we've looked at so far in the first three or four chapters, Paul has spoken to these Christians very openly about the reality of facing challenges. Remember Paul the Apostle, we told you, in his own life at this point personally, is currently imprisoned. He's facing his own set of challenging circumstances. Paul's imprisoned, he's awaiting trial, he's potentially even awaiting his own execution as well as the fact the Philippian believers that Paul is writing to. He has spoken to them numerous times in this letter about different challenges that they themselves were facing. He talked to them about uh, external threats, like their adversaries that were threatening them, uh, and how they would, he said in chapter 1, even find themselves having to suffer as Christians on behalf of Christ, that a part of their Christian experience, the very fact that they lived for Jesus, would at times cause them to experience some suffering on occasion in an anti-Christian world that they were living in. He also talked to them about internal threats and the fact how that there were, it seems, relational conflicts and difficulties in interpersonal relationships that were happening among them there even in the church of Philippi and how they remember were going to have to aspire towards unity how they were going to have to learn how to be other centered and consider others better than themselves and they were going to have to do things in their own situation there to learn how to resolve personal conflicts and relational challenges that they were having even among themselves so it's with that understanding of these specific challenges that they were facing, as well as no doubt just Paul's general awareness that life at times can be difficult and have stressful experiences, that Paul senses a need inside of himself to now it seems, as the Holy Spirit directs, to address the human struggle of anxiety and the human temptation and propensity towards worrying about different things. Uh, look with me, if you would, back in verse 6 as Paul begins to address these things. He says, first of all, in verse 6, right out of the gate, he clearly says these four words, Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Paul comes right out of the starting gate and gives a straightforward command, literally, it's a command, not to allow ourselves to become anxious. It's an instruction, an injunction from God not to allow ourselves to become worried about things. I want you to take notice here and in many other places, the Bible does tell us that it is God's intention that we should have nothing of which we are continually anxious and worried about. In fact, one translation of this same verse renders these phrases here, don't worry over anything now to be anxious is defined as extreme uneasiness of mind or agonizing fear about something 
And I think that can be whether real or perceived because sometimes we're anxious about real literal circumstances that are scary and threatening and stressful. So sometimes our anxiety, it's real. It's a genuine. And then there's other times that we experience, would you agree, agitation and worry and fretfulness over just perceived things that we become concerned about that they're, they're really never going to happen or it's not going to come to pass. But the perception from our vantage point causes us to become anxious and worried and fearful, to have mental distress and agitation due to concerns. And perhaps today, for whatever reasons, you find yourself experiencing that. Perhaps today, for whatever reasons, you find yourself under the weight of anxiety and the, the stress of worry. And let's be honest, there are a wide list, a wide array of things, honestly, that can cause and create us to become anxious, to become worried in our lives. I mean, there are relationship problems. Maybe there's a marital dynamic that's going on, that things aren't going the way they should, and you're concerned because of marital tensions and problems, and, and it's causing you to have anxiety and worry because of a marriage relationship. Or maybe it's something with your children as they're not going the direction you like them to go. And so it causes worry and anxiety and your parental love for them and wanting to see them experience what you start to get worried and anxious over how's this going to turn out and what choices are they going to make in our lives. Maybe it's a financial thing, concerned about, well, how are we going to pay these bills? And it seems that the debt is just going to weigh us down. And financial crisis and challenges certainly can create a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry. Sometimes it's just the tremendous pressures that we find ourselves under. Maybe it's the bad health report that we get from the doctor, that we hear some negative news or some concerning thing, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves, we could go an infinitum on again and again with so many different theoretical ideas, but there are lots of things that can be trigger points and causes for us to become worried, for us to become anxious in our lives. And yet God in his compassion, in his compassion for you and I in our human weakness, speaks to us here in his word the truth of God to let us know his heart and his instruction for this human struggle of worry and anxiety by simply saying to us in love, be anxious for nothing. Now when we look at our word there, anxious, or it may be translated worry in your Bible, it's interesting the root in which that word comes from means to be drawn in different directions and to become distracted to be drawn in different directions and to become distracted. That's the root of our word worry or anxiety. And it pictures really what worry and anxiety looks like. And it pictures what worry and anxiety does to us. When we become anxious or worried, we become overly concerned in our thoughts and in our feelings and our emotions. And what begins to happen is we find ourselves drawn way off course to where normal thinking and normal feelings should take us. And worry and anxiety does exactly what the term describes there. It draws us off the course of normal and internally we, through exaggerated thoughts and feelings and undue concern, find ourselves drawn in different directions, pulled apart, and we then become distracted from the normal place of our thinking where God would have us to experience life. And through wrong thoughts then and wrong feelings, they take control and they draw us into directions that become unhealthy for us to go down mentally and emotionally. 
And you know, worry and anxiety and stress can be personally destructive and as well, it can become personally disobedient before God. Uh, you know, statistics will show you, you can do the research that worry and anxiety and stress can be personally destructive. It has tremendous detrimental effects upon the human body. Worry and stress and anxiety can cause headaches and stomach and digestive problems and muscular pain and fatigue. It can cause people to have all types of dysfunctions in their mood and personality in the way they interact with other people. It's personally detrimental and destructive to us. We know that. But it also can become personally disobedient before God. You know, it's interesting that over 100 times in the Bible, God says to us in his word, do not fear or do not be afraid. That's an instruction from God. And over 100 times, God tells us, don't fear, don't be afraid. Jesus himself spoke extensively about worry, commanding us that we would not be, listen to this, dominated and controlled by worry. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34, listen to some of what Jesus says there. He says, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body and what you'll put on. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says, for example. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He says, are you of not more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? In other words, by worrying, can you change anything? Again, many has been said before that worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you absolutely nowhere. And Jesus says, by worrying, can you change things? Can you add one cubit to your height? Can you make yourself even an inch taller? Can, can you do anything? There's nothing constructive that we can use worry to create for ourselves. And Jesus is pointing that out. He goes on to say in regards to worry, oh, you of little faith. He says, do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Again, questioning what's going to happen. How's it going to work? He says, for all these things, the Gentiles or the unconverted person seeks. For your heavenly father knows that you need these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day, Jesus says, is its own trouble. Listen, I want you to see that worry, just like other things, can become sinful before God. In the same way that being dominated and controlled by other things can become sinful before God. My life or someone's life becomes dominated by some sinful habit. And hey, your life's, man, you're being dominated by that habit. That's sin, man. That struggle with alcohol, that struggle with drugs or lust or, or and we say that's sinful. You're being controlled by that. Well, in the same way, worry and anxiety can do the same thing. To be under the control of that can be just as detrimental in our lives because what it does is it disregards the love of God as a caring and capable father. When we worry and let anxiety go to the place where it does at times in our lives, in a sense, it's disregarding the love of God as if somehow he is capable and he cares enough as a father to intervene and take care of us as a child. 
And when we worry and let anxiety get out of check, it ignores his presence and his power. And that's why the Holy Spirit says here, look, be anxious for nothing. Interesting, when you look at the phrase there in the Greek too, it actually, the tense of the terms indicates a prohibition of something that was already happening. In other words, it could be better translated, stop being so anxious over things or stop perpetually worrying not even about one thing. Now listen, God understands, he's compassionate. God understands that there will be things in our lives that are going to trigger worry. Don't get the impression that God's saying that somehow he expects us to live a life existence where somehow nothing phases us and we, we never experience concern, we don't get stressed. And That's not what God's, what God's telling us is that his will is that we not become dominated by these things. That we not become controlled by anxiety and by worried, controlling our lives and strangling us in an unhealthy way in the same way we can be dominated by other things. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, Cast all your anxiety upon God because he cares for you. See, God in his loving care actually prefers for us to transfer the stress and the worry we carry over to him to let him bear, in a sense, the burden so that we can be liberated to live without being weighed down by those things, that we would give it all to him. It reminds me of a story that I heard of a, 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 a businessman who had a huge amount of responsibility. And because of that, he was always worried. He was constantly stressed because he carried so much responsibility. And his poor friend was so concerned for him. Every time he saw him, he was so stressed out. And he was always worried. And he was always anxious and struggling with anxiety. And his friend was really burdened for him. And then one day he saw him a few days later, and he was like a completely different man. There was a different you know, stepped to his stride and he was all smiles and he just seemed as carefree as could be. And, and his friend was just shocked and he said, hey, I don't understand what, what, what's going on. You just seem so relaxed now, like all the worries gone. And he said, I am. I don't have a worry in the world. And he says, well, wow, what, what happened? And he said, well, to tell you the truth, he said, I got so sick and tired of being so worried and anxious over everything. I actually hired someone. I hired someone full time to do all my worrying for me. That's his full-time job now. And his friend said, are you kidding me? And he said, well, I mean, how much does something like that cost? And he said, tell you the truth, it actually cost me five grand a week. He said, five grand a week? How are you going to afford that? He said, that's his worry. <laughs> you know, I, I listen to that story and I think to myself, what a great illustration in a sense of how it should be with us and the Lord. Cast our anxiety on him. Truthfully, for absolutely free, because God loves you and he's a father. He says, listen, it's my worry. I know what you're facing. I know what you're going through and I know the way it looks. But you know what? That's my worry. I'm a father. No child, you know, truly in, in understanding the relationship, parent-child relationship, typically is supposed to or should worry. It's the father's job. It's the parent's job to worry and the child's job to experience life because they know, hey, that's what dad does. That's, what the father, that's his job to take care of things. And the same is true with us spiritually. So the Bible indicates here God's antidote. Notice in verse 6, his antidote for this plague of anxiety and worry. Be anxious for nothing, and here comes the antidote, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known 
to God. So the appropriate response, the Bible says, is in everything, what should we do? He says, in everything, we should communicate with God regarding it. We should not be anxious about anything the Bible says, not allow ourselves to worry chronically about things. Instead, he says that while in everything, by prayer and supplication, we should go and let our requests be made known to God. Everything that we face that's difficult and dangerous in our lives and stressful, it always becomes a tremendous opportunity for us to become infected with worry. They become infected with anxiety and stresses. And please note here in verse 6, this is God's antidote for worry. Here is the prescription in the Bible for anxiety. Time spent in prayer. You should write that down. God's antidote for anxiety. Time spent in prayer. Time spent in the presence of God talking to God, being in his presence. The word prayer that Paul uses here is just a general term that refers to communication with God out of our love and devotion for him. That as a result of the relationship that we, we interact with God and communicate and spend time with him. And that should be the natural outflow of relationship. A fundamental characteristic of relationship is the desire to and the, the, the interaction of spending time together with someone we're in a relationship with. So as someone who's in a relationship with God, we should spend time in God's presence. We should sit with God and, and, and just pour out our hearts to God and share things with Him and communicate with what's going on in our life and, and, and just let our concerns and our burdens be expressed to God and then to be listening to God what He might want to say to us. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that God's will, literally says God's will is that we pray without ceasing or that we pray continually. The idea is, is that all throughout the day we're in constant communication with the Lord. It's like dialing a phone to connect with someone and then just never hanging up the call. And just staying on the line with the Lord all day long. So it begins seeking him in the morning and then just all throughout the day, whatever we're doing. If we face something, we lift it up to the Lord. If we're struggling with something, we talk to the Lord about it. And just praying consistently, unceasingly, in continuation in relationship with God. So whether it's just a private time where we sit with the Lord and pray for a little bit, or whether it's just that ongoing everyday conversation, or whether it's times of, of getting together with other believers for a prayer meeting, nonetheless, we read here of some of the elements that should be involved. Paul says, by prayer, and then he says, and supplication is another word he uses here. And that word supplication speaks of asking God to supply special and specific things. It's a word that infers speaking to God about our personal needs, going to God in a direct way, in a detailed way to tell them our desires and to express in a detailed, specific way what our needs are. Jesus taught us to pray specifically when we pray. He taught us to pray in a detailed way. Father, give us this day our daily bread. And again, if I think of my relationship with my children as a father, my children understand the relationship dynamic. And when they pray and talk to me, they're very specific in regards to what they want or what they, they're very detailed about it. You know, Dad, can I have three bucks to go to the Ocean City High School football game? You know, you know, Dad, can I have this? You know, Dad, and they're just they're very detailed. They're very direct. They're very specific. 
They don't feel a need to, oh, thou wonderful potentate, most holy father. If thou might thinkest upon me in graciousness. Dad, they ask. You know, I, I wonder sometimes, forgive me if this almost sounds irreverent, I wonder sometimes if God does just go, would you get to the point? Just ask. What are you looking for here? Just ask. Tell me, be detailed and direct. God's a king. Let us never forget that. If you approach the throne of a king, if you had the opportunity to have a few moments in the presence of a king or the, you know, a powerful person like the president of the United States, you wouldn't mince words, would you? You'd be very direct. You would just speak very efficiently and clearly exactly what you're wanting. I'm not saying we shouldn't praise the Lord and show reverence, but, but I think sometimes supplication, we miss the point. And you see in the Bible these two words combined all the time, prayer and supplication. Supplication is specific, direct requests of God for our needs. We should pray for our needs. The Bible teaches us that. We should tell God our desires specifically and in a very clear way. James 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask. God tells us that. He also mentions as well that in our prayer and supplication, it says, verse 6, that this should be done, notice, with an attitude of supplication, an attitude, excuse me, of thanksgiving. So that's the attitude in the midst of our prayer and supplication. We go to God in a grateful attitude. We come to him and we share and unload. Lord, thank you that I can bring my burdens to you. Thank you, Lord, that I can talk to you about this. No one else would understand, Lord. Thank you that I can just be honest before you. And I don't have to feel ashamed with what I'm struggling with. And, and to be thankful that we can actually have an outlet to communicate to God. Lord, thank you so much for who you are and, and Lord, what you're able to do and that there's nothing too hard for you, Lord. And I don't know how this could possibly work out, but Lord, I'm so thankful that you are able to do above and beyond what I ask or think. Thank you that nothing's impossible with you, God, and I thank you for what you're going to do. Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name, amen. And just with that appreciative heart of gratitude marking our prayer and characterizing it so being anxious for nothing in everything with prayer and supplication notice he then summarizes verse 6 by saying let your requests be made known to god so when you need something when i desire something notice let our requests be made known to god now please don't overlook this here because oftentimes if i'm honest and you would be real with yourself, many times we tend to let our requests, if we're not careful, be made known to others. And whether it's through sort of an indirect inference to something that's going on, or whether it's through just directly broadcasting what our need is or what our request is, we tend to naturally a lot of times gravitate towards just at first making our requests known to people. The Bible says, listen, first and foremost, let your requests be made known to God. Hey, can I encourage you this morning, develop the habit of telling God what you need. Develop the habit of telling God what you need. Going directly to God and seeking God, truly seeking God for the needs in your life. Truly letting God know what your requests are. Lord, this is, and you share what's happening, and Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you to provide in this area. Lord, I need you to help me in this area. And truly letting your requests be made known to God. I'm telling you, it works. It works. And when we do that, and we let our requests be made known to God, 
and you actually give God an opportunity to show you he's real, that he listens, and that he has the power to perform things in your life for you, independent of anyone else even knowing what your request is, it's a really marvelous thing to get to see and experience God working in response to your requests before him. You know, David speaks of this, I believe, in Psalm 116. Listen to what he says. He says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. He's inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. Do you hear what David's saying? He says, you know, I mean, I've just come to love the Lord all the more because he listened to me. And he says, and now that he's listened to me, I want to talk to him even more. And see, what begins to happen as we let our requests be made known to God is as we wait on God as our Father and we seek God to act on our behalf with our requests as our King, and then God answers and then we get to see God act firsthand, what happens is all of a sudden prayer then becomes exciting. And it entices further prayer in us. And I'll go so far to say then it actually makes us start to enjoy prayer. Because, wow, I went and told God my request and I didn't tell anybody else, and God answered. Sometimes I'll tell you this, and it's a marvelous miracle. You can tell God your request, and then God will tell someone else to answer your request. Because God can talk to people, and God hears our requests. And I want to challenge you in light of what it says there. Let your requests be made known to God, the Bible says. Experience the reality of prayer and what God can actually do. Seeking God in prayer is both our privilege and responsibility. But notice verse 7, that there is also a benefit for us. The benefits in verse 7, he says, as you let your requests be made known to God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So here's the blessed promise and the byproduct of spending time in prayer with God. He says, the peace of God settles and calms our soul internally. Verse 9, we read that God is actually called in verse 9, the God of peace. So his very nature is peaceful and he desires to extend and offer his peace to us. He's the God of peace. He is the source and origin of true peace and lasting inner peace can only be found in God. And the Bible here is instructing you and I of how we can experience the peace of God. And how does that happen? As we spend time with God in prayer as we go to God and we sit with him and we bring our worries to him and we, we talk to him about our cares and we express our concerns and we make our requests to God, God, the Bible says, honors that humble dependency as we come to him like a child. He honors that with this blessed experience internally of letting the peace of God flood into our soul in such a way that it gives us an internal calm. And it settles our heart like which was once an agitated sea. God settles it down and causes it to actually become peaceful. And we have a sense of internal rest. The peace of God comes into our lives. And notice Paul describes the peace of God, verse 7. He explains it saying it's a peace, notice it says in the text, which surpasses all understanding. Indicating there to us that this peace of God, what it does, here's what happens. It transcends logic. It's a peace of God that's supernatural that comes from the God of peace. And in this miraculous experience, God lets his peace flood into our soul in such a way whereby it doesn't make sense rationally. How we could possibly have peace in the midst of what's going on 
in our life. But what God does is he bypasses my little finite mind and the need to have to understand what's going on and how it's going to work. He bypasses our human logic and reason and floods us with an overwhelming sense of peace internally where we don't need to figure it all out, but we can just rest in this sense of peace that God has given to us. And notice how that peace of God operates. He then goes on in the verse to say that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is what the peace of God does. It guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to think for a minute. Typically, how does the struggle of worry and anxiety and stress come into our lives? Is that not what it does? It attacks and invades our thoughts and our emotions and our feelings. When we're struggling with anxiety and worry in our lives, what's happening? We're being invaded in our thoughts and we're being attacked in our emotions. And what Paul is telling us here is when your heart becomes overwhelmed with all those feelings and emotions of the fears and the stress and then your mind is attacked with all the thoughts. Oh no, what if? And what about? He says, what happens is as you pray, God promises to send the peace of God into your life to come in and it guards, it guards your heart and mind. That word guard there, when you look at the term, it's a military term. It speaks of a garrison of soldiers that would surround a person in protection from an enemy. Or a garrison of soldiers that would surround a fort in order to protect it from an invading or an attacking enemy. And it's a picture of what God's peace does. The peace of God operates in that supernatural way. Whereas I pray and I'm lifting things up before the Lord, God floods my soul with his peace and his peace comes in and it garrisons and guards my mind from all the attacking, scary thoughts that are coming. God says, and he puts a, a barrier by his peace around our mind of all those thoughts by just pulling us in all different directions. And he floods our soul with the peace of God. So all those emotions and fears and concerns, somehow God intervenes and he just surrounds our feelings and our emotions to where he can guard us against the attacking fears and stresses that cause worry and anxiety. And I'll tell you this personally. I can't say that if I just casually launch up my burden to God that I always experience what this says here. But I can tell you this from personal experience. I know firsthand that when I sincerely take my situation to the Lord and I go sit in his presence and I just work it through, just talking it through with the Lord and I sit in his presence and I express my heart and I let my request be made known to him, I tell you as a result of sitting in the presence of the Lord that the experience of being able to walk away with the peace of God when you leave from that moment is something that is so literal, so wonderful, and so realistic. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing. In some ways, it might be said that the level at times in my life of anxiety and worry, the level of that may at times be an indication of a spiritual problem of a lack of my spending meaningful, consistent time in the presence of God seeking him in prayer. You know, maybe this morning the Lord is inviting some of you to participate both in the principle he states and the promise he offers of the peace of God. Isaiah says this, Isaiah 26.3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, on God. Do you hear that? The Bible says 
that when our mind is on God, that God keeps us in perfect peace when our mind and focus is on him. It's a blessed, blessed promise and experiencing. Now, perhaps, I don't know, as Paul makes mention of the mind at the end of verse 7 there, maybe like you and I, that prompts Paul to then think about, hmm, you know what? One of the biggest battlegrounds in all of our lives is the mind. So Paul, knowing in our lives that our minds are tremendous battlegrounds, in verse 8, he then begins to speak about our thoughts. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things, he says, are noble, just, pure, and lovely, whatever things are good, report, if there's anything virtue or praiseworthy, he says, meditate on these things. Your translations say, think on these things. Paul gives an instruction of what things we should, he tells us, that we should make our careful reflection. He gives a descriptive list there in verse 8. And he says, meditate, ponder, think on, keep your thoughts focused on these specific things. And that word meditate means a habit of thought or careful reflection. So contrary to the justifications that I make at times, and contrary to maybe the justifications you make, God says that we do have control over our thought lives. God tells us in his word that indeed we are responsible for what we do with our thought life and our thinking patterns and we should hold our minds accountable to healthy ideals. See, I have found firsthand that thoughts may pass through our minds and thoughts may travel through our minds and it seems like we have no control of that. Right? I'm sure you've all experienced that before where some thought comes flying into your mind, you're thinking, why in the world am I thinking that? Or, or, or why am I thinking that now? And sometimes it's so vulgar and inappropriate. And it's almost like you have no control. It's like, like an invisible arrow. The, the enemy just fires this invisible arrow and this polluted or crazy thought comes through our mind or a fearful thought or a worry or something we're terrified about. And it seems we have no control over that thought entering into our mind and passing through. But listen to me, we do have control over letting that thought park there and then it becoming our meditation and it becoming the thing that we think about more than we should and we let our mind begin to go places with it and our thoughts can become off track because we let something resonate there that was only supposed to just pass through and we begin to think on it more than we should. You know, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 that we're to be bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That is, the Bible says that there are times where we are actually to capture our thoughts like you would capture a prisoner. We are to capture our thoughts and say, you know, what I am thinking right now is not consistent with what Jesus Christ would have me think. The thought that just went through my mind, you know, I need to capture that and not let it run and not let it go anywhere. That is not consistent with a thought that Jesus would have me be thinking about. And we have to actually capture our thoughts, reel in our minds and take control of our thoughts. Now, in light of this, let me say, too, we do know that what we feed into our minds through what we view and through what we listen to, etc., is going to directly affect and influence our thoughts and what we meditate on. If we were to be very honest, typically our thoughts are fueled by what? By the things that we view with our eyes 
and many times a thing that we listen to with our ears, the eye and ear gates, I have found, are like deposit slips into the thought bank. And typically what we see with our eyes and what we allow to go into our ears, that kind of deposits into our thought bank, and then you can only withdraw what's been deposited many a times. You can't withdraw other, th you withdraw what you put in. And because of that, I think that's why Paul says, look, we have control in some capacity of what we do view and what we do listen to. So Paul's saying, look, be proactive, be a good steward. Be a good steward, he says, upon what you're going to think upon. Instead of thinking upon unhealthy negative things, regulate, discipline your mind to think about what's healthy. And he gives a list here in verse 8 of adjectives of what we should think on. He says, think upon, notice verse 8, he says, think upon what's true. In other words, think upon real things, dependable things. Don't be thinking upon things that are just, they're lies, they're misrepresentations of reality. Think upon, he says, what's real, things that are true, credible, dependable. Think upon, he says, what's noble. And the term there speaks of royalty, of thinking differently as if you were an heir to a throne. Noble, royal thoughts. And we are children of God. We're heirs to the throne. We should be thinking differently because of our heavenly position. He says, think upon what's just, that is, things that are righteous, things that are right. Don't focus on what's wrong and evil. Focus on what's righteous, he says. He says, think upon those things which are pure. And the term there means morally clean. That we're not to be thinking and meditating upon things that are defiled and impure, unholy. He says, think upon, he says, things that, which are lovely, which means beautiful and caring. Things that inspire and encourage love and care and concern. Things which are of good report. So what's positive and rather than the ideas, rather than what's negative. Think upon what's positive. Don't be thinking upon negative events and news and so forth. And he says, whatever has virtue or praiseworthy, so things that have good reputation. And would you agree, typically, our depraved and weak minds tend to gravitate towards what? Everything opposite of what's in that list. Unless your mind's not like mine. <laughs> My mind tends to naturally gravitate towards the opposite of what's there in that list because of its fallen sinful condition. And then as a result, what happens? I start getting off course mentally. Or, if we're not meditating and thinking on those things, you start to experience worry and anxiety because you're thinking upon all the other things in this crazy self-destructing world that's so negative and like a ship on its crash course and all of a sudden you find yourself full of anxiety and worry and seeing how things are out of control. Now let me make a few, a few practical thoughts and applications in regards to verse 8. First of all, the influence of our world's message that's coming across the television screens, that's coming through movies, that's coming through social media, that's coming through music. I tell you this, and it shouldn't be an epiphany. It is not going to facilitate what verse 8 describes there. <laughs> if you haven't noticed yet, what you see on TV predominantly, what we can listen to in the, in the, you know, the media, and, and what's on social media, typically it does the exact opposite of this, does it not? It defiles our minds. It's stuff that's polluting our minds. You've got to have something negative to even get on the news, right? I mean, it, it just does the exact opposite to us. And I just point that out this morning to say this. We have control over influences in our lives. Take that for what it's worth. Take that for what it's worth. You have control. Regulate your diet. Be wise. Just 
be careful. If you don't want to struggle more with anxiety and worry, sometimes here's a great reminder in regards to that. I will tell you this. I can think of two things which will help us honor and obey this instruction here that we can meditate on that would honor and obey exactly what verse 8 tells us to think about. And that is this. Number one, to meditate on God's word. Because I think if you look at the list in verse 8, you're going to find most of those things in the word of God. You're going to find what's true and what's lovely and what's pure and what's praiseworthy. If you meditate on the word of God, you'll be doing that. Or just by meditating on God himself. Because verse 8 is an incredible description of who God is. So there's a great reminder of what to meditate upon. Meditate on the word. Meditate upon God himself. And it will help in that thinking struggle that we all wrestle with. Verse 9, Paul then concludes, The things which you've learned and received, heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So notice Paul ends here with an important exhortation. He's basically in verse 9 saying this, put these things into practice now. Put these things into practice. Once you come to know what's right, Paul says, if you want to partake of these things, the things which you've seen and heard and learned and saw in me, he says, now you do these things. Just like Paul talked about back in chapter 3 when he set himself before the believers as an example in Philippi, no doubt they had saw Paul as their leader, live out these Christian principles. They had watched him, as his example, live out these things and experience them firsthand. And Paul says, but now, now you do these things and the God of peace will be with you just like you saw that he was with me. He's saying God's not partial. God wants to do all these things in your life too. And he says, and the things that you saw and experienced in my life, he says, now you do these things and experience the benefits for yourself. And it seems when we do the things that God instructs us, that the experience is that we in a greater way have a greater experience with God's presence at work in our lives. So Paul here is encouraging these believers, look, put these things I've taught and shown you into practice. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you know what? Spend more time in prayer. He's saying, discipline your thought life. Take control of your thoughts and watch how the peace of God will flood into your soul and there'll be less stress, less worry, less anxiety. Listen, this morning, God loves you and he wants you to experience his peace. The Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always and in every way. If you're here this morning and you're a believer can I ask, does it seem, maybe just where you're at right now, that you lack peace in your heart, in your mind? Well, can I give you a simple encouragement? Instead of striving, why not just surrender and put into practice what God's put right there in his word in front of you? Decide to pray and talk to God more than you have been. Determine to discipline and control your thought life and what you let go into your mind. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, can I say to you, if you're not a Christian, the first step toward experiencing the peace of God is to first make peace with God. And the Bible tells us this in Isaiah 57. God says, The wicked are like the troubled sea which cannot rest. There is no peace for the wicked, saith the Lord. 
I want you to hear that if you're not a Christian this morning, God tells us in his word, there is no peace, saith the Lord, for the wicked. God purposely, hear me, God purposely will not allow an unconverted person to ever experience complete peace in their soul. He will purposely let them stay like an agitated sea on the inside for one reason, because he is trying to get that person to realize that they need to make peace with God within and that there's a battle and a conflict that needs to be resolved in here before them and their creator, that they would make peace with God first and foremost, to have their sin forgiven and to surrender their life to God. And then God says, once you've made peace with me, then the troubled sea will settle down and then you can be experience the peace of God in your soul. And the Bible tells us the way that happens, Romans 5, it says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you have never made peace with God or you're not sure if you've made peace with God, listen, the way to do that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sinners. We have all offended God and our sin is offensive to a holy God. But God in his love established the terms for the peace treaty. Jesus came, he lived the sinless life that you and I can't live, and then he died substitutionally, and he took all the pain and the punishment and the wrath of God upon himself, dying for us upon the cross, and then three days later rose from the dead, defeating the power of sin and death. And now Jesus says, listen, my blood has shed and, 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 and paid the terms for a peace treaty so that you can be at peace with God. And if you come to me through me as the intermediary, I can make you at peace with God. But it comes through putting our personal faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, Jesus, would you forgive, forgive me? And I surrender my life to you. And as we do that by faith, believing and receive the forgiveness of God and receive God taking over control of our life. It's through that the Bible says we come into peace with God in our lives.